The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. My name is Shelley Snyder, and I work with our students here at Christ Presbyterian Church. Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Timothy 3:10 through 4:8. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Welcome to church on a rainy day. Great to see your beautiful faces, even if it's only half of some of your faces. Uh, Love your eyes these days. And uh, those who are uh, still remaining at home from social gatherings, uh, out of an abundance of caution, we we greet you as well, and uh, we're thankful that you're able to join us as well. if not in person, at least from a distance. And so uh, before I get into the text here, I want to invite us uh, once again to join collectively to pray the prayer of illumination from John Stott, uh, whom Nate Tasker has mentioned already this morning, and, uh, and who is a major influence on this sermon series through his wonderful commentary on 2 Timothy. So let's, let's pray that prayer together. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence May your word be our rule, your spirit be our teacher, 
and your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, there, uh, after, this, after this one, there's going to be one more sermon in our Second Timothy series, and then we will uh, do a brief three-week series called Politics, uh, which should be really fun. Uh, and then we are going to do an extended Advent series, which I personally am really excited about, just, just for my own personal enrichment and hopefully uh, for yours as well. Uh, it's going to be uh, an Advent uh, series in the book of Isaiah, and uh, it's going to be called A Weary World Rejoices. We're living in a weary world in a very weary uh, time. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I miss living in precedented times. Uh, we're all weary of these unprecedented times, and so we're going we're gonna to see what rejoicing might look like uh, in the midst of of weariness and uncertainty, but today, um, today I get to uh, talk from the book about the book. Uh, the Bible uh, talks about itself and esteems itself uh, in a way that demands our attention and affection. So let's start with this, though. Uh, this is something that might draw us away from scripture. It's something called confirmation bias. Have you ever heard of confirmation bias? Psychology today defines the term this way. Confirmation bias is when, we des- when our desire shapes our belief. It's when we would like a certain idea or concept to be true, and so we end up believing it to be true. We are motivated by wishful thinking. This error leads us to stop gathering information when the evidence gathered so far confirms the views or prejudices we would like to be true. Once we have formed a view, we embrace only information that confirms that view while ignoring or rejecting information that casts doubt upon it. Confirmation bias is a form of self-deception. It's like this. Say you go into the doctor for your annual checkup, you've, you've been healthy all your life, high, metaz- high metabolism, eat, drink, whatever you want, whenever you want, however much you want. And then all of a sudden your doctor says, whoa, uh, we're uncovering some things in your blood work uh, and we've done some scans. And if you want to live a long, healthy, flourishing life, you need to go on the Mediterranean diet right now Uh, You need to get rid of all the sugar in your life, uh, and and that's what you need to do if you want to stay healthy. Well, if I have confirmation bias, I'm going to start asking the question, wait a minute, the doctor just ruled out 70% of my favorite foods. They're not on her list, and therefore I'm going to go seek out a second opinion. I want a doctor that will confirm what I want rather than tell me what I need. We do this with news sources as well, right? We we run to the the news sources, the channels, the, the, the websites that confirm what we want to be true. And we avoid the, the channels and the websites that that confront what we want to be true, right? It's in all of us, and it's it's also true of church people. Paul says to the young pastor Timothy. He says, the time is coming 
young pastor, when people will not endure sound, uh, that's another word in the Greek for healthy, teaching. Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Confirmation bias. That's another way of saying when and where they don't like what the Bible is saying, they're going to look for other people who have a different take on the clear teaching of Scripture. And they're going to surround themselves with teachers who will actually contradict Scripture, but not contradict them. That's what they're going to want. It's confirmation bias. But then Paul says these three words that are also relevant for all of us today. As for you. Just another way of saying you've got to be different. You've got to swim against the stream, sometimes all by yourself. You've got to swim against the, the, the stream, he says, in season, when it's convenient, when it's popular, when you're not receiving a whole lot of pushback, and out of season, when you might even get crucified for it. Remember, Paul's writing this letter from jail because of his love for and championing of the whole word of God. There are two words that, that represent uh, that which Paul and Scripture and Jesus are calling not only Timothy but every Christian toward. Number one is submission. And number two is courage because submission takes courage. Because submission requires us to contradict ourselves, to deny ourselves. So as to follow health, to follow soundness. So there's this movie, Office Space. Uh, I don't want to recommend it to you. But there is a character in there. His name is Peter. And he gets really frustrated with his work. And one of the reasons why he is frustrated and demotivated by his work is that he has eight bosses. What Paul is saying to Timothy is... Ignore all the noise. You have one boss. And everybody that you've been called to teach and and, and that you've been entrusted to as your congregants, they have one boss. The sacred scripture. Sacred scripture is the boss of them. Sacred scripture is the boss of you. Ignore all the other noise. Dismiss all the other noise. Analyze all the other noise on the basis of what Holy Scripture says. And he points Timothy in verse 14 to the truth that the young Timothy had learned as a child from his mother and grandmother, which would have been the Old Testament Scriptures, uh, the writings of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, the wisdom books, the historical books of the Old Testament. But here, uh, Paul hints also at adding the New Testament to Uh, what what theologians call the canon or or the body, the approved, uh, validated body of Scripture add the New Testament as well, which Paul refers to as my teaching. My teaching? Well, Paul was an apostle. And what's an apostle? An apostle was somebody that had had two things happen to them. Number one, they had been eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like they experienced it. They were there. As Peter says, we we did not make known to you cleverly invented myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So you'd witness his resurrection, 
and Christ himself, the resurrected Christ himself, has said to you, you will be my spokesman. You will be the one who who writes what remains to be written of scripture to share with the world. To complete what was started in the Old Testament. That's where we get the Gospels, the book of Acts, the other apostolic letters like this one. But this word submission, what what we're talking about, what Paul's talking about is is proper positioning. Where, Where we don't put the Bible under our scrutiny. We put ourselves under the Bible's scrutiny. All the Bible, by the way. Not not just the parts we underline, but especially the parts we were prone not to underline. The parts we're prone to skip over. The the, the, the parts we're, we're prone not to highlight. He says, all scripture. You know, Adolf Schlatter, I, I shared this with you a few weeks ago. He's a German theologian. He was, uh, he was being examined for his views, and somebody asked him, do you stand on the word of God? And his answer was, no, I don't. I stand under the word of God. That, that's, that's the positioning that Paul is advocating for. You know, Jesus in the Great Commission, you can find this in the 28th chapter of Matthew, he says all, it's an, again, there's that word again, all authority, all bossness, all ownership has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What gives Jesus this authority? What gives Jesus this right, the right to say these things, that all authority belong to him? Well, number one, he not only has the word, he is the word. He is the word who was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's John chapter one. He's the maker. He's the keeper. He's the sustainer. You know, Tim Keller really likes to say, about Jesus on the subject of scripture. If you poke him with a fork, he's going to bleed scripture. You poke Jesus, Bible is going to come out of him. And that's what Paul is calling Timothy to as well. We we see this played out in Matthew chapter four, which is the famous temptation narrative where, where the serpent in the garden shows up And confronts Jesus and tempts him. And every temptation, he he, he is trying to steer Jesus away from his thoughts, words, and living aligning to the word of God. The, the, The enemy, the deceiver, the accuser is trying to steer Jesus into, uh, uh, into autonomy you could call it American individualism, and out of submission to the word. And every single time, happens several times, Jesus answers the tempter with these words, it is written. And one of the things that Jesus says in that dialogue with the tempter, with the Satan, is man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, life, man shall not live, but he will live, he shall live, she shall live 
by, the, by, by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know, there's one place where, where Jesus is publicly teaching uh, some very uh, socially unacceptable teachings. If you want to live in the kingdom of God, you have to learn how to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people are confused and they're like, you know what? We don't understand that, so we're rejecting it. That is unnerving and disruptive, so we're rejecting it. That's not part of our body of teaching. That's not part of our group think. That's not part of our politic. That's not part of our way of thinking. And so we walk away. That hurts our feelings. So we're going to walk away. There's no tolerance for the word of God contradicting them. And so Jesus then looks after the crowds have have walked away and said, thanks, but no thanks. And he says, what about you all? Are you going to leave too? Are you going to walk away too? And and Peter famously turns to Jesus and says, where else are we going to go, Lord? You have what? The words. You have the words of eternal life. Resist any portion of the Bible and you are resisting the very basis upon which your maker built his entire life. Resist it at one point and you're really resisting all of it. If you resist one part of scripture, what you're saying is, I reserve the right to stand above the word of God, to scrutinize it rather than submitting as it scrutinizes me, to reform it rather than submitting to it so it reforms me. When Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him, he's saying he's the potter, we're the clay. He makes us, we don't make him. He shapes us, we don't shape him. He forms us, we don't form him. Voltaire says, you know, God created man in his own image and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Notice here, though, how how Paul says, I want you to preach the word in season and also out of season. So so this is like the out of season part. Do you remember the quote from John Stott that, that, that Nate Tasker shared with us just a few minutes ago? where Stott was talking about Scripture and and the role of Scripture includes certainly encouraging us and building us up and giving us hope, but it also includes confronting, disturbing, undermining, and overthrowing our unhealthy, unrighteous motives, ideas, pettiness, and behavior. Remember, the Bible is called a sword. The sword is there for an injury, not, not, not for a death blow, not for a death blow to the people of God, but, but as a scalpel to, 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 to operate on us, operate on our hearts, our belief systems, our motivational structures, our social lives, the way we engage the world and our work, to operate so that we're healthy, so that we can have life so as to give life and impart life. Luther says 
under pressure in an out-of-season time. My conscience is captive to the word of God, and to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. The safest place on earth is in a surrendered posture where you say to the word of God, assault me. That's the safest place on earth. Is with open hand you yield to the scriptures and, and, and even invite the scriptures to assault everything in you that lacks health in the same way that you'd want a surgeon to assault your cancer. So how do we confront our own confirmation bias? We have to invite daily pushback from, from the book. The book that, that, that Paul writes here is profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So that we can confess like we did earlier today, honestly. Lord, deepen our sorrow for the wrong we've done and for the good that we've left undone. Make us feel again about those things. Resensitize us to those things that we have become desensitized to. Let your passions shape our passions. Let your thoughts shape our thoughts. So the first business we've got to do is, is business with our own self, with our own American individualism, which says no one has the right. This is how we think, ever since the 1960s, really. It's really kind of a post-enlightenment way of thinking, where, where we are not answerable to the community anymore, where we are not answerable to a, a power higher than us anymore. We are only answered, answerable to ourselves, and you are answerable to me as well. And so in the name of my American individualism, I say... With authority, no one has the right to tell me what to think, what to believe, how to live. And the unpardonable sin, as far as I'm concerned, is for you to stand in judgment on my truth. That's the unpardonable sin these days. I alone have the right to decide what I am going to do with my body my money, my time, my life. You know, Billy Joel immortalized these words with a song. I don't need you to worry for me because I'm all right. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. It's like the cosmic middle finger. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my own destiny. I am the architect of my life. I am my maker. I decide what my identity is. The Bible pushes back on this. Oh no. 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own. You've never belonged to yourself. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. This is why the book has absolute jurisdiction over the definition of you. But the good thing is that jurisdiction is not an iron fist. It's the jurisdiction of a healer. It's the jurisdiction of a surgeon, of a physician, 
or Matt, as an anesthesiologist, to, to, to tend to your pain. It, it's all there. It's not just about confronting, it's also about protection. In verse 15, you know, Paul says the scriptures are able to make you wise. Wise. Because as the Proverbs say, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's going to destroy you. In the end, it leads to death. The writer of Ecclesiastes is an old man with a lot of regrets. He's built his life on the American individualist's platform. And he's succeeded at American individualism. He's wealthy. He's got all the sex he wants. He's got properties. And he's extraordinarily unhappy. And he writes to younger people. And he says, here's the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his word. This is the sum of everything. This is the answer to all of the foolish things that I've built my life upon. Another thing he says there, kids, teenagers, students, young adults, remember your creator in the days that you are young. Start early. Don't wait. Don't think that a hedonistic, self-centered life is going to be the fulfilling life. It's not. You start early, submission with submission and surrender to the book. You set yourself up for the happiest life that you can possibly live. As Luther says in, in the hymn that we're going to close with today, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. There's just this gushing jubilance from Luther, even as he's facing, about to face the possibility of his own death, of his own execution. Submission and then courage, because you can't submit unless you have courage. Submission is one of the most courageous things a person can do. This entire passage is, is, is a seasoned Christian talking to a younger timid, anxious, not so sure of himself minister, Timothy. And it's as if he's saying, this is a call to be brave. You can't flourish, you can't bear fruit fully as a Christian unless you become brave. You have to have courage in in several ways. Number one, you have to have the courage to change. You have to have the courage to change. You know, again, he talks about how you know, this human tendency to have itching ears and, and to want to, you know, and to have confirmation bias and to, to surround ourselves with voices and sources and outlets that will con- confirm as opposed to confronting our biases. Courage flips that. Courage says, give me all that you can to help me see and contend with my own blind spots and unhealth. Don't let me deny the lump under my my armpit. 
Don't let me deny it. Push back on me. I'll fight you, but fight me harder back. Oh, sacred word of God. Confront my biases. There are a lot of church people in Timothy's day and also in our day and in every day. There are a lot of church people who demand that church be a safe space. You know, those of you who are involved in academia, you know what a safe space is, right? It's, it's this new thinking on college campuses that's emerged in the last, I don't know, 10 to 15 years, where students must be safe from being exposed to ideas that they are not comfortable with, that hurt their feelings, that disrupt and agitate their status quo. That's what you call the loss of education. I like what uh, and appreciate what Van Jones, the, the commentator, says about safe spaces. He basically says, I don't want my children, I want my children to be physically safe on their college campuses, but I don't want them to be emotionally safe or ideologically safe. I want them to be emotionally and ideologically strong. Big difference between the two. We have to think of churches in this way, of sermons, of the Bible in this way. On the one hand, a church is supposed to be the safest place on earth. Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. There's a place at the table for, from everyone, from, from, from the prostitute to the Pharisee. But we must never mistake the message, come as you are, as also being the message that says, stay as you are. Courage involves change. You know what one of the most uh, inspiring things is from, from where I sit? You know, I look out and I get to see you and your expressions and what you're doing in your seats. I play off of your faces. You know, that's your, your ministry of presence is a ministry to us. One of the things that just lights my fire is 90-year-olds who take notes during a sermon. Expressing by their own body language, I have not arrived yet. I'm willing to learn from somebody who's half my age and half of my wisdom and half of my life experience. That's, that's so inspiring. To not only remember your creator in the days that you're young, but to continue to remember your creator every day until the days that you're old. It's such a gift. You know, a, a growing believer savors the encouragement of Scripture, and a growing believer savors teaching, correction, rebukes, and training in righteousness to be equipped for good. Also, the courage to suffer, the courage to change, and also the courage to suffer. You know, Paul, remember, he's writing from jail because of his public love for the word of God, for all the word of God. He writes to this young pastor, verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I promise you this. And persecution comes in degrees. 
11 of the 12 disciples lost their lives as martyrs because of their public love for the word of God. In our context where we, we have relative religious freedom, it happens in other ways. Like with my friend Tom in a previous church. Tom lost his job, not because he lacked integrity, but because he had integrity. His company wanted him to do something deceitful uh, in order to bolster the bottom line. And Tom said, with all due respect, I can't do that. And he got fired. And then he got slandered, talked about in, in the industry. So it became very difficult for him to find a new job. When people did reference calls on him, they would, they would badmouth him. And he was really discouraged during a certain season. And we were friends to their family. And one day I saw Tom sitting in church before the service. And I went and sat behind him. And I tapped him on the shoulder. I said, Tom, how about you and I, middle of the night tonight, go to your old office building and set the place on fire? And, you know, he looked at me with a little cheeky smile, knowing that I was trying to empathize with him. You know, the righteous anger of a friend for the wrongs that have been done to you is, 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 is a gift. And he acknowledged that as a gift. But then his face got really serious. He said, no retribution. As if to say, get behind me, Satan. Because you are a hindrance to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. No retribution. Forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. I want to finish this race and I want to finish it well. No retribution. Entrusting myself to the one who judges justly. Resisting the urge to take his matters into my hands. Get behind me. Courage to suffer. And like my friend Tom, courage to stand alone. These words, again, as for you. Th those are words that say you have to, you're going to have to stand alone sometimes. You're going to have out of season seasons where you're going to have to stand alone. To not enter into the gossip. To not enter into to the, the bullying or the mean girl culture. To not enter in to corporate deceit, to not enter into political bull. You know, that, that, that treats your side as the savior and the other side as the devil, as, as if there isn't complexity there. You gotta stand alone sometimes. If you're Jesus' person, then sometimes you're gonna have to be your own person all alone. So my, my nephew, my brother, my brother called me and told me something that my young nephew, 14 years old, 260 pounds, six foot four, uh, they're grooming him to be a college prospect at a state championship winning high school in South Carolina. And a couple of weeks ago, a kid, a fellow teammate, stole all of my nephew's money from his gym bag, and he got caught. 
and he got exposed. And the coach, you know, gave some consequences and said, give him his money back. And, and teammate after teammate came to my young nephew, my 14-year-old nephew landing, who could, you know, crush a metal ball with his hand. He's so strong. And said, kick his you-know-what. Retaliate. Retribution. Destroy him. Crush him. Cancel him. And landing, instead of standing with the crowd, stood alone. And he walks up to this kid who stole his money and said, are you okay? Are you having financial problems? Is everything okay at home? Is there anything I can do to help you? Do you need money? I'll be happy to help you. And the kid, probably out of embarrassment from being caught, said, I don't need your money, I don't need your help, and kind of walked off. And as the boy walked off, he said, offer still stands. It's a young, imperfect, beautiful 14-year-old. How are we doing, adults? With things like forgive, as God in Christ has forgiven you. And if somebody asks for, you know, for one of your, for a shirt, give them, the, give them the shirt off your back and then give them another one. If somebody asks you or even demands that you walk a mile with them, walk two miles with them instead. How are we doing? Courage to stand alone. And then finally, courage to hope. I, I, I'm poured out as a drink offering. This is where he's talking, that, that's an, a, a reference to blood. Ooh. What does it mean when a preacher looks at his watch? Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. But I'm almost done, I promise. I'm almost done. I'm poured out as a drink offering. That's a reference to his own blood. It's about to be shed. And the time of my death has come. He's awaiting execution. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And a crown awaits for me. No matter how costly this book, no matter how costly submission and courage becomes to you and to me, and I suspect that in years and decades to come, it's going to become more costly. And it's going to become more socially scary to walk into a room like this and associate with people like this, who believe like this. I suspect that it'll probably get harder before it gets easier. Here's what Paul says, a crown awaits. How does he know this? Because he loves Jesus' appearing. Just as Christ appeared in his first coming and then in his resurrection, he's promised to come again, make all things new, sealing the fact that our best days are always in the future and never in the past. 